Hello and welcome to our RSTM podcast series. So I'm Priyanka and today I'm joined by Harry, a core surgical trainee. Hello. And Abby, a plastic surgery registrar. Hi there. Firstly, thank you both so much for joining us. And on today's podcast, we're discussing service evaluations. So this is a topic that can be quite difficult to get your head around. And I know I personally struggle to understand, but perhaps Abby, you can start us off here with what exactly a service evaluation is. Yeah, so I mean, this can be a relatively dry topic, so we'll try and make it kind of as interesting as possible. But essentially, a service evaluation, you want to know what you're currently doing in your service, which seems pretty obvious, but um, you want to know exactly what practice is happening um, and it's a way to kind of look at what is happening how efficient it is or its effectiveness um, and so those are the three major aspects that they can look at um, and the RSTN has run a lot of them in the past um, and it's something that usually is the first stage uh, after the kind of systematic review of any kind of project. So an easy way to get your head around these is to think about what it isn't so it isn't an audit which is comparing something with the standard and it isn't research, which is trying to answer a specific question. And we're going to come on to some more key differences. So what it is, is essentially evaluating a service. It does what it says in the tin. You're just looking at how you do something at the moment. Yeah. And um, something I'd add to that is those three words are used quite interchangeably. Um, and it, it's something that it's really important to define exactly what you're doing, because it's important for things like applications for ethics or applications to the hospital to register these projects. And people do, you know, uh, blur the lines and often someone will register something as an audit or a service evaluation and then publish it as a cohort study, uh, which, you know, you can get away with up to a point, but you don't want to be accused of dodging ethics. Uh, so, yeah, it's important to understand the terms. OK, great. Thank you, guys. Um, so I know we've touched on audit and service evaluations, but I think what would be really useful is to understand the key differences and um, perhaps similarities between service evaluations, audits and research projects. Yeah, so um, essentially with a, a service evaluation, you're, you're looking at a service, but without any reference to a particular standard. Um, whereas in an audit, you choose a predefined standard. So that might either be something that's measured uh like a trust guideline so for example vte assessment and prophylaxis or a national guideline so something like uh, the both lower limb guidelines and then you're comparing your practice to whether you're meeting that standard so that's the key difference there with a research project you're looking to develop new knowledge so that is involving collecting new data potentially either doing follow-up or um, an intervention that may actually not already be done for those patients um, and that's why it differs from a service evaluation or audit. So usually in those two, nothing has changed in their care and it often involves routinely collected data. Sure. Thanks, Abby and Harry. Um, so why exactly is a service evaluation important for clinical trials? So I don't know if you want to start on this one, Harry. Um, yeah, sure. So uh, the key thing when you're setting up a clinical trial project is you have to have uh, the right question. And then you have to get some money, which could be several million pounds in order to run it. Uh, and when you go to somebody or a funding body with your question, uh, with your proposal, they're going to say, well, you know, it's a nice idea. But you know, what's currently going on at the moment? What's the current lay of the land? So a service evaluation can help you generate your question. and can help you uh, generate some baseline data on what's going on at the moment to decide what might improve 
based on potential findings from your trial? Yeah, so if we just talk about um, an example that the RSTN has done in the past, the wire service evaluation. So the results of this are still being analysed, but the wire evaluation um, is kind of a basis for a potential uh, applying for funding for a trial. And it's looking at the infection rate of buried versus non-buried K-wires. Now, you might assume that people use these equally across all demographics, uh, but then if you did a service evaluation where nobody actually is using buried K-wires anymore, then actually you wouldn't be able to do a trial comparing the two. So you need to know that your assumptions of what people are doing in practice are actually correct and in date. And as we know with COVID, there's been a lot of change um, in people's practice due to various pressures on resources. And so you want to know that you've got an up-to-date picture of what people are doing. And we've talked about the similarities between audits. You can achieve a lot of that with an audit as well. So if you're working in an area where there's a very good national guideline, you can do an audit, which is essentially also telling you the lay of the land and allowing you to progress to a trial. Um, and the other quick thing to say is even, you know, your service evaluation might not lead to a trial, but it could lead to a change in local or national policy, which has a huge influence on practice. And it can also um, highlight an area of work that you actually want to focus on a little bit more. So we'll use this example a bit more later. But during COVID, the RSTN um, did quite a few different projects. So they did one on hands and burns and they were service evaluations looking at what the current practice was during uh, the peaks of the pandemic. And actually that has generated quite a few questions that we may want to do uh, research on in the future. And it gives you that bit of data to have a look at what's happening now um, and where you could focus your future research. Great, yeah, that's really, really useful. But I, I think there is a big question here um, about how we should run this. Are we running it in one centre or are we looking at a multi-centre approach for a service evaluation? I mean, how big are we making it? Yeah, so, I mean, ideally, the whole point of running these is you, you have the most centres to be involved as possible um, because if you if you have you know only one center the, your findings are only generalizable to that particular service or area so if you want a whole picture of you know a big geographical area or lots of different services um, you, you want to have as, as much involvement as possible I guess it's fair to say though that if you're thinking that's a little bit overwhelming and you're looking at something glossy like the RSTN and thinking well I'm never going to be like that it's fine to start small uh, cut your teeth on a small project where you work, evaluate a service, present it to the team where you are, and then think about rolling it out across a deanery or a region. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, doing things uh, through big collaboratives, so whether it be the RSTN or another big collaborative, is a great way to get people involved. Um, and it's also a great way to get lots of feedback on your protocol and things for a service evaluation. Um, and, you know, everybody working together in that way to come to one bit of guidance or you know piece of research uh, to support and funding application in the future okay so say for example i have an idea for a service evaluation where do i really start what are the steps that i need to perform for a service evaluation okay so i'm going to use the example of um, a project that i was uh, involved in running during covid and that was the rstn covid hands and harry feel free to chip in at any point so essentially when you start wanting to do a service evaluation you want to find out what you want to look at essentially so in r1 the rstn covid hand we wanted to find out what practice was happening during covid in hand surgery 
So you start, and I know Ricky mentioned this in his previous podcast on the systematic reviews, and you need to write a protocol, um, which sounds pretty much as exciting as it is. You need to think about inclusion criteria um, and exclusion criteria. You need to think about the time period you want to look at, what data you want to collect and what outcome. And then you need to think about how you're going to engage all of these different sites if it's a multi-centre one. So on each site, you need to think about what little mini teams you want to collect the data. So usually, so for example, we had a consultant with two or three juniors and we got them to collect a, a set amount of patients each. I think for our project, it was 30 consecutive patients that met inclusion criteria. And it's each collaborative group, it's their responsibility to register it with the audit office. And that's where you register service evaluations as well. And we could do a whole podcast on good collaborative practice and how to get people involved. But I'm sure uh, Priyanka might do one of these later on in this series. So we won't go into that. Um, so Harry, do you want to talk a little bit more about where we take it from there? Yeah, so I think we should do a whole podcast on that, as you say. Uh, just if somebody's thinking of doing something now, I think the key principles are be clear with people up front what they're going to get, what you're asking from them. Don't put your name on the first of the paper and no one else after they've done all the work. Don't just put them in the appendix. Uh, it's not really on. And then people are happy to work with you. Uh, there's a quote, which is, you can achieve anything if you don't mind who gets the credit. Okay, so once you've got people who've collected data, uh, it's important to do a bit of validation. So you need to have somebody senior to go through a proportion of the data, check for completeness, check for accuracy. Uh, and you need to think about there's potentially some perverse incentives for people to you know, say they're doing 100% of data at their sites, but not do it and things like that just to get on it. So you have to have an approach to get people to uh, you know, confirm that they have done it, have somebody senior checking per site and validating all the data. Then, of course, you've got your data sets and you need to you know, do data analysis, answer your question. Uh, not just run 400 t-tests without adjusting just to see what p-values you can get obviously that's bad practice we can come to that in a different episode uh, and then present and write up your findings to disseminate so like any step it sounds like it's quite a big process so what are the main pros and cons of running a service evaluation so i think a, a service evaluation um as previously mentioned is a really good way to get into research and whether that is as harry mentioned doing a small one in your unit or being involved in one of these big collaborative ones so uh, i think harry and i were both involved in the star surge one and they were kind of the team that um up in birmingham that really kind of led the way in collaborative research for trainees um, and this was over 10 years ago and um i think we were collecting data on um non-steroidals for general surgery patients and it's just a really good introduction to, you know, uh, registration of projects and protocols, understanding them, collecting data. So I think that's a really nice way of um, getting involved in it. And it's also an opportunity to collaborate. You can actually work out Abby's age from that. If she says she was collaborating on a student project in 2012, but I'll leave that to the listener. <laughs> Thanks for adding that, Harry. Um, but if we go back, what are the cons of a service evaluation? Yeah, so I, I think the main one is the kind of volume of admin. And unless you're someone who really, really enjoys that kind of organisation and chasing people and endless emails, it, it can be pretty arduous. And people that need to be encouraged to do all these aspects. So you can have kind of things to make this process a little bit easier. So 
a template for audit, audit registration at each uh, site. So if you give people that partially filled in, they can adapt it to their trust. But then and then the continued uh, engagement from the teams is quite often quite challenging. So you can have really enthusiastic juniors collecting the data, but actually getting consultants to go back. And even if it's only five percent of uh patients need to be validated it, it can it can be quite a difficult thing to get them to do I think the other thing is the kind of continuing the enthusiasm after all the data is collected so for example the RSTN COVID ham project um, we collected data for that on over two and a half thousand patients um, and that's led to over a million pieces of data and so it, it's actually taken a, a really, really long time to write up and analyze because um, you, you can have lots of uh, good statistical programs, but it's still a lot of number crunching. Um, I'd like to come in with some tips here. So when you're designing it, you can think through these cons and you can try and address them. So it's important to design it to not collect any data that you don't plan to use. Don't just collect it because you think it might be interesting because you will end up with 5 million data points. Also, if you make a realistic estimate of how much work it might you know, it might be for people to collaborate. So you can say in DGH, this might be 30 hours work divided by a team of three. In a teaching hospital, this might be 100 hours work divided by a team of six. And that can help people uh, remain enthusiastic. Thinking about designing the period of your study collection. Uh, I once ran a, a similar project it was six months prospective. And let me tell you, it was very difficult to keep people engaged for six months prospective. Uh, I would never do that again. Two weeks or a month works well uh, and allowing people to divide up their time. So there are cons, but you can you know, work around them and design a project where people know what they're getting themselves into. They're happy to do it and they're you know, clearly credited afterwards. And they, you know, everybody wants a quick win, which is a worthwhile project. Yeah, and I'd, I'd add to that as well, managing collaborator expectations. I think people submit the data and, and they hope for a publication within a few weeks, but actually realistically these projects do often take a couple of years to write up and that's even with people doing it kind of as part of bigger kind of degrees and things yeah and overcommitment's a problem you know that when you're junior there is a temptation just to sign up to 10 of these things because you think brilliant 10 papers that'll sort me out be professor of plastic surgery by the age of 35 but you know if each one is going to take you 20 hours of work there's 200 hours of work. You know, if you're a student, you don't have enough time outside of studying. And if you're a foundation, you're a doctor. There's no time in your job plan unless you're on an academic job. Uh, and so it's essentially a lot of this is being done in your free time. And it's great if it's an interesting project and it's you know, worthwhile. And, it's you know, you're doing a limited amount. It's adding to your rich career. But just don't overburden yourself. Well, thanks, Harry and Abby. That's amazing. Um, I know we touched on publications, but. Are there any other ways for us to share our findings or disseminate findings at all? Yeah, so I, I think obviously um, you mentioned publication, but presentation is a much quicker way of getting the word out there. Um, the other thing that's really quite common now, and especially in plastic surgery, is Twitter. Um, and people are kind of showing early either interim results, kind of early results on, on Twitter. Sometimes people use things like um research square which are preprint things and that um, preprint service and that was quite common in covid so i think basically shout about the achievements um as much as possible yeah you get a lot of people who do a project and they say they can't find anywhere to put it and i do i honestly believe there's a home for almost every project so uh, yeah start a, a reputable journal 
uh, find somewhere that's got a track record of publishing collaborative work like the BJS uh, and work down until somebody takes it. Okay, so now some fun questions. Step away from service evaluation. If you could give any advice to the house officer version of yourself about getting involved in research, what exactly would you say? Yeah, so I think, um, as I mentioned before, the collaborative thing, I'm I'm a really strong believer in that. Um, and But also to only do research that you're actually enjoying. If, if you're not enjoying it, don't do it. Don't do it for... Um, kind of cv points um, and i think that's something that matt costa touched on in last week's podcast actually you've got to do a little bit that you enjoy with people you enjoy um and then you'll get the bug and keep doing it um and i think you the other thing is um make sure you're doing the research with people who you enjoy working with and it's really really fun going to conferences and um kind of working on projects with people who you get on with so I, I think especially plastic surgery, you can often work in quite small units. Um, and so it's a good way to know people from other units by collaborating on projects. Do a small number of really good projects with great people. Don't say yes to everything. Learn to say no politely and then it's all fine. Oh, amazing. Some really useful tips for junior doctors there. Um, and also if you're getting involved in research for the first time. But can you guys remember your first ever publication and what you really learned from it? Yeah, so um, I was glad to hear that even Justin's first project wasn't a plastic surgery one specifically. So um, mine was a uh, neuropathology project and um, a very young uh, new consultant in Bristol um, who has just become professor of neuropathology um, got me involved looking at uh, PCR testing clonality of um, some hematological brain malignancy. Um, I basically did the clinical um, work for that. So I looked through all the notes for her getting the clinical data to kind of align with her lab results. But she was just so wonderful. And basically what I learned from that is she she took me through um, how to present projects, how to collect data, how to analyze it, how to she took me to my first conference in Manchester. Um, and it was a uh, neuropathology conference which I never thought I'd go to but I, it just really taught me that actually a small amount of investment in somebody can really give them the bug for research um, and so I think that's um, a really important thing as you become more senior to remember that. And what about you Harry can you remember yours? I've just had a look because I thought you might ask me um, so the first one uh, September 2014 was my uh, intercalated PSC project where we cut up a load of human intuitable discs and did immunohistochemistry and I kept messing up using up all the reagent by doing it wrong. That was good. Uh, so I learned to uh, don't be distracted, don't use up the expensive reagent. And the other one we've already talked about, which was the Star Surge project uh, about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in the perioptive period, October 2014. And that taught me the, you know, the, the road uh, into collaborative research is worth following. Well, that's all for today's podcast. Firstly, thank you both so, so much for joining us today. And if you are listening out there, thank you so much for listening. Uh, make sure you do follow our podcast series on Spotify to find out when we release a new one. And do follow us on social media to find out when we are doing new projects. Thank you and bye-bye.